you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians and chapter 12. 1 Corinthians and chapter 12. This is part two of our new series on biblical church membership that we've entitled The Dearest Place on Earth. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 12, and we're just going to read the whole chapter together today, all right? 1 Corinthians 12, starting verse 1. I'm going to be in the New American Standard version is where I'm going to be reading from this morning. It'll be behind me in that translation uh, for you to follow there if you are so inclined. So 1 Corinthians 12, starting verse 1. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's go ahead and read this together. 1 Corinthians 12, starting verse 1. God's Word says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one says Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the effects of miracles, and to another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing of spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We're all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not part of the body, it's not for this reason any less part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now, God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on those we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. God has appointed to the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administration, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you still more excellent way. Amen. This is God's word. And may God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. In the excellent book, Church in Hard Places, Mez McConnell opens chapter 4 with this following story that I want to read to you. It says, years ago, I was in Cape Town, South Africa, visiting a young man named Andy. Andy was involved in ministry with a parachurch organization that specialized in working among street gangs. He had previously interned for me in Nidri, which is in Scotland, and had asked me to visit him in the field in order to provide spiritual accountability to him. We went out one evening for a meal with some of his 20-something friends and co-workers. They were all young, fresh-faced go-getters who were in South Africa to work for the Lord among the poor and needy. But as I listened to the conversations among these young missionaries, I was surprised by their utter disdain for the institution of the local church. When I asked them where they worshipped, the answer was sadly all too familiar. We worship together as friends. After all, where two or three are gathered, Jesus is with us. This was closely followed by, the local churches aren't doing their jobs, so we will take the church to the people. 
warming to their theme, one young lady proudly informed me that she didn't need to be in the local church to prove her love to Jesus. Sadly, she later returned home and no longer worships Jesus anywhere. What these young people all had done, in effect, was swap the local church family for the Christian ministry they worked for. In this new family, everybody looked like them, talked like them, thought like them, and cherished and fought for the same passions as them. This suited and played into their us-against-the-world mentality. But this is spiritually dangerous, says Mez. Here they were, all the way out in South Africa, with little spiritual accountability except for the manager assigned to them by their organization. They were the only Christians around, a group of spiritually immature friends who were likely to support unquestioningly each other's views on life and the local church. When I pointed out to one young lady that her ministry seemed to lack an understanding of the importance of the local church, everyone sneered. Here's the line I will never forget. Poor people need Jesus more than they need the local church. Her friends congratulated her on a line well said, and the conversation moved on, which was good as I was getting ready to smack everybody in the room. I was stunned. Here were living, breathing, functioning parts and organs of the wider body of Christ, unprepared and unwilling to contribute to the life of a local body. They just didn't see the problem that Paul was so clear about in 1 Corinthians 12. These young limbs were wandering around without a body, and they didn't see the harm or danger in doing so. That view of the church that Mez encountered there is one of the most popular views of many self-professed Christians today who have little or nothing to do with the local church. The justification, of course, is that the local church is simply unnecessary for the life of the Christian and that one can live their Christian life and even do ministry without being attached to a local body. In other words, they think they could be a member of the universal church without being a member of a local church. Is this a correct view, biblically speaking, though, I wonder? But there's another view that is fairly popular in our time as well. That takes another approach to church membership, but it's just as dangerous. Let me read you this from Tom Rainer, uses this illustration, in his book, I Am a Church Member, okay? This is what he says. He says, it was a big deal for this young boy living in a small southern town. I didn't know what a country club was, but I knew one was coming to town. And it included a swimming pool, a dining area, and meeting rooms. The owners also promised to build a small golf course, a promise they would fulfill a couple years later. My parents were middle class in income so they could afford the small monthly fee. From my perspective, though, I had made it. I didn't know of anyone who had their own pool in town. So this amenity was exciting. I could order a burger from the dining area. I could have birthday parties and pool and meeting rooms. I began to learn a lesson. Membership means perks. Membership means privileges. Membership means others will serve me. Just pay the going rate, and you could have others take care of you while you enjoy a life of leisure. And tragically, he says, this understanding of membership is what many members hold. Their view of membership is more aligned with country club membership. For them, membership is about receiving instead of giving, being served instead of serving, rights instead of responsibilities, and entitlements instead of sacrifices. So in this alternate view, membership in the church is defined in much the same way the word member would be defined in a country or civic club. Whereas in Mez's story, the young believers did not attach themselves to the body, in Rainer's example, those who would be part of the church actually occasionally go, but their membership is conditional. And once those conditions cease to be met, they can easily go to another club that will meet them. Is that any more biblical than the first example, I wonder? It turns out both are two sides of the same unbiblical coin. The problem, it seems, is not only a misunderstanding of the fact that when Christ saves an individual, he saves them into a people, into a family, into a bride, into a body, into a living temple, but it also misunderstands at the most fundamental level what the word member itself means. And this is what I want our focus to be from this text this morning. And so as we continue our series on biblical church membership, we want to answer from Scripture the most basic ideas of what God intends and means for the church to look like. So what does it mean, biblically speaking, to be a member of a church? What does the word member mean? And what does it at the most basic level entail? 
We're going to look at three things this morning. The first, being a member means physical attachment to the body. Okay? Number one, being a member means physical attachment to the body. You surely noticed, didn't you, when we read 1 Corinthians 12, that Paul gives this extended analogy that runs from verses 12 to 27 of the body of Christ being analogous to a physical body. The church, of course, is the body of Christ. He's the head, right? Which means that, like we talked about last week, he is, has authority, Christ does, over the body. He provides provision and direction for growth. As such, the Spirit has ordered the body the way that he has alone sovereignly determined. Which you can see in verse 7 and 18, right? It was God who has placed members into the body and gifted them the way that he saw fit. And the body is made up exclusively of people who make the profession that Jesus is Lord because, verse 3, only those who have the indwelling spirit can say that. And, verse 7, every Christian is thus given a spiritual gift that the spirit sovereignly chooses for them, but to what end? Look at verse 7. This is one of those verses that you want to highlight, you want to underline, you want to make attention to, okay, because this is the controlling verse of the whole chapter. Actually, since, since chapters 12 through 14 are one section, you could say verse 7 is the controlling verse of the whole section. To what end does the Spirit give spiritual gifts to every Christian? For the common good of the body. And these members are baptized, verse 13, into the body of believers, both by the Spirit and through the initiatory act of water baptism. They are thus members of the body in much the same way that your arm is a member of your body, or your leg, or your eyes, or your ears, or your foot, or your elbows, or your fingers. This, the analogy is not some casual analogy that seemed like a fun picture to use for the church and its members. The word member is used the way you would use it for your body parts, and it carries with it incredibly important meaning for how we should see and relate to the church and our part in it. Many may easily believe that this word member that we use in the church is simply just being borrowed from other organizations. Thus, if one believes that, it is a quick line, an easy line to draw from what it means to be a member of one of those organizations and apply it to the church. Right? So the breakdown happens in those cases from the beginning with a fundamental misunderstanding of the definition and origin of this word member. After all, if it were true that the word member first appeared like in civic clubs and country clubs or Sam's Club and the church was just like, hey, that seems like a good word that we'll use and they're just borrowing that language, then yeah, it would make sense, wouldn't it, for the church to function that way that those clubs do, that those other places do. And, and what does membership in those places entail? As Rainer said, at the most basic level, it means perks. But it doesn't necessarily mean physical attachment, does it? Like, you could technically, isn't this true? You could technically be a card-carrying member of a local civic or country club or warehouse retailer and never actually physically go. Isn't that true? You never have to go to that place, but you just pay your due, and that's all that's really required. Yeah, but here's the thing. The church didn't borrow the word member from anyone. The word member, as you can see, is deeply biblical and is made clear by this text and Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians 4 and 5. And the picture entails, at minimum, Physical attachment to the body. I mean, if you, let's say you never heard of the word member used in any other area of life, and you just came and you read 1 Corinthians 12, what would you conclude? You would conclude that membership in the church looks like membership in your physical body, right? Like a, a body part, which means actual attachment to the body working in concert with all the other limbs for the good of the whole. Is that not the picture we have in 1 Corinthians 12? Isn't that clear? Like, it's clear from this in chapters 13 and 14 that being a Christian means having, let's start with the basics of what we read, okay? Being a Christian means having the indwelling spirit, right? Isn't that clear from this? And thus, 
having a spiritual gift, right? That's what it says. And that the spiritual gift is, verse 7, for the edification of the others in the body. Are we tracking together? All of that is clear. So how could you possibly use the spiritual gift that the Spirit has sovereignly given you for the good of the whole body if you aren't regularly, physically with the body? No. It's just not possible. (laughs) If you lose your arm, (laughs) how can it pick things up for you or lift up food or lift you up? It it can't because it it isn't attached and thus it's not functioning, right? I mean, this this should be non-controversial. This is plain from this text. And how, if you consider Mez's experience in the introduction, do you use your gift if you don't have a body that you have committed to be attached to? Verse 18 says that God has placed the members of the body the way he desires. This means that he has, I'm talking to you, okay, sovereignly placed you in this particular church so that you can use the gift that he gave you for the good of others. But if you're not physically with the church, how can you do it? Craig Blongberg, in his uh, commentary, he says, the New Testament recognizes no individual or Lone Ranger Christians who are not attached to some local Christian fellowship. In societies like ours, where individualism is valued above corporate responsibility, the importance of the metaphor of Christ's body looms large. I'm afraid, however, that we've lost these important and fundamental truths about what membership entails. Do do you? You know, naturally, since I've been the pastor here, I've met many people in various contexts in Cordial, right? And it's not uncommon for someone I meet to say, you're the pastor of First Baptist? I'm a member there, you know. And I'm thinking, oh, really? Because I have never, ever seen you in my whole life. And sometimes I'll say something like, you know... I really should make it to that new building and see it sometime. And I'm like, new bu- we have a new building? Oh, you mean the one we've been in for six years? And finally, they'll just tell me, you know, I go to this other church, or I don't go to church at all. I'm too busy. So, that way, you know, I won't do anything as heinous as, like, invite them to physically come to the church that they consider themselves a member of, right? Do you guys see the problem there, though? It's common for people to think they're a member, remember what this word means, of this church, and never, ever physically come to the gathering. And, you know, that's not unique to us. That that kind of thinking is pervasive all throughout the nation, in churches everywhere, across denominations, but especially in the South, where cultural marginal Christianity is far too common. But that kind of thinking does violence to the very word member, doesn't it? To be a member of a church and have no attachment to the church body makes zero sense, biblically speaking. Because again, it's contrary to the very word. Now, there are some rare exceptions to this, right? Shut-ins, people in nursing homes, right? Missionaries sent out. But those are people who literally can't make it but they would, if they, they, they could, they would if they could, right? What is far too common and far too often the case, however, is someone, or in our case, 1,200 someones who are members without actually being members. Do you see? John Hammett says, for anyone who questions the propriety of using phrases like church members or church membership, it's worth noting that the body image gives us both the precedence for such language and the proper understanding of it. Being a member of a church is nothing like being a member of Sam's Club or a member of some team. Church members are those vitally connected to the other members of the body as the physical members of a body are vitally connected to the physical body. Any so-called church members who could leave their churches without feeling the pain of being severed were never members in the biblical sense at all. Biblical membership is a serious commitment. I mean, could you imagine, just, I want you to picture, if you could walk up to this Apostle Paul fella who wrote 1 Corinthians 12, you just walk up to him, you said, Paul, I'm a member of a local church, 
that I never go to and I never worship with and I don't use my gifts in and I never partake in the Lord's Supper with them. He would, to borrow a line from an all-time great movie, A Christmas Story, look at you like you had lobsters crawling out of your ears. It just wouldn't, he wouldn't have a category. For, he's like, do you even know what that word member means? You never go? You never attach yourself to the physical body? We have to consider what the Bible says membership is and let it define it and consider what is best for the health of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and for its members, even if it pushes against what we've always believed about membership. Like those who live too far away to physically come to the gatherings of the body should be directed by the church to join themselves to a local body where they live so they can be watched over and held accountable and use their spiritual gifts and be discipled. Like, like how does someone who can't come to the gatherings of the church being retained as a member do them or the church any good? How? It's for their good to join themselves to a body where they can flourish. It's not for their good to be affirmed in their refusal to join a local body they can be physically attached to. The Christian life was not designed to be done alone. And growth is simply not possible without devotion to a local church. And those who do live near and can come to the gatherings should be sought out by the church and encouraged to come to the body that they've committed to. Those who attend another church should be encouraged to either return or join themselves to the church they attend. I mean, why would it be, this is something I never understood, why would it be better to be marginally devoted to two churches rather than being fully devoted to one? Why is it better to tell two churches, I won't commit to you, rather than telling one church you're all in? What's the point of retaining membership at a church you refuse to gather with and, and be attached to and be given oversight by and use your spiritual gifts in? Doesn't that contradict this very text? And what we looked at last week where we saw that church membership's role is a testimony that the church can affirm these people are faithful followers of Christ when no such thing can be said of people the church does not seek in something as basic as corporate worship, which regular attendance of, is commanded in Hebrews 10. Like, look, I know such suggestions push up against what we've known or believed a church membership is, isn't it? Like, I'm under no delusion here. But again, we have to ask, why, why do we view membership this way? Like, why? Can we really back up these views from Scripture? Are our views just based on what we would prefer to be true? Because it would, well, yes, it'd be far more comfortable and easy to run the church like it's a country club. Isn't that, wouldn't that, I mean, that'd take no, no effort at all. This is hard, and I know that. And so we have to ask, are our views just based on what we would rather be true, what we'd like to see, what we're comfortable with, what we see in the world, or are they actually in Scripture? Because a member who does not physically attach to the body as a life priority is a contradiction in biblical terms and meanings, and the proof is right here. Now here's another question that will lead us to point number two. How can you be united? How can you have unity, okay, as a church when you aren't physically together? Unity is important to Paul. You know this? And it's important to Jesus. If you don't believe me, go read the high priestly prayer in John 17 and see how he prays for you to have unity with your brothers and sisters. And he shows us, Paul does, that point number two, membership means unity in diversity and equality, Okay, number two, membership means unity in diversity and equality. You know, contextually speaking, Paul is writing here to a fragmented and splintered church. The Corinthians are dividing 
over seemingly everything. Like you name it, their favorite leaders, their social status, their views on spiritual gifts, on whether or not you could eat idle food, and on and on and on we could go. And so Paul is heavily emphasizing the importance of unity throughout the letter, and that's very clear here. Did you notice, just look, look down at your text, okay? Did you notice how many times the word one and one or same is used in this one chapter? And, and notice in verses four through six the Trinitarian nature. The emphasis of the Trinity here. There are a variety of gifts, but how many spirits? The same spirit. And there are a variety of ministries, but how many Christs? Just the one. A variety of effects, but how many gods? The same God. In other words, the members of the Trinity are united around the same purpose and goal. They are not divided. So he's asking them, why are you? Don't you reflect them? And don't you... Don't they dispense the necessary tools for the mission? That's what Paul's asking them. Now look at this, okay? Let me point out a couple examples to you, okay? Verse 7, the Spirit gives gifts for the common good. Verse 11, one and the same Spirit. Verse 12, the body is one yet has many members, but it's still one body. Verse 13, by one Spirit, you were baptized into one body, and we're all made to drink of the what? One spirit, verse 18, body is singular. Verse 20, one body. Verse 25, no division in the body because members have the same care for one another. Do you see? Like why would he say one and same so many times? Can you say unity matters to Paul? Can we say that fairly from this text? But Paul is also clear that while the body is united, it's still diverse. Not all members of the body are the same because if everyone were an eye, then it could do nothing but see. And it could not hear. Everyone looking the same and having the same gift is as absurd as seeing a giant eyeball rolling down the street. And the reason that members are diverse is because they will need to be interdependent. They will need to rely on others for proper functioning and growth and the good of the whole. If they were all the same, nothing would get done, right? But if they don't use their gifts, nothing would get done either. But if they, they have different goals instead of one common goal, then it would be harmful to the whole. But if they all need one another to function, none can be considered unimportant, right? I'm reminded of a, there's a similar picture of this Roman uh, historian Livy, he pictured the, just kind of like Paul does here, he pictured the body parts talking to each other, right? And so essentially the body parts saw that they were doing all this work, but the stomach just kind of sat there and it seemed like it did nothing, right? And so they're like, let's show the stomach. And they entered into this conspiracy with uh, each other, the body parts did. And the, the hand said, I'm not going to pick up food. And the mouth said, I'm not going to chew food even if you bring it up and we'll show the belly who's boss. Do you know what happened? It turned out that the belly actually did provide service, right? It put the nutrients back into the rest of the body. So you know what happened to the body? It just wasted away. It just wasted away because it turned out that the belly actually nourished the rest. The whole body needed to do its work for the benefit of the whole. Each part rendered service, but if a part didn't do its work, the body would waste away. The body of Christ is no different. Again, God has placed each person in the body and the spirit has bestowed on them a gift to be used, verse 7, for the common good. The members thus need one another. They depend on one another, but are all equal with one another. No gift is more important than any other gift. They are all necessary for the body to function as Christ intended. The Corinthians needed to deeply learn this and we need to deeply learn this. See, you know, the Corinthians weren't much different societally than we were. We are. They esteemed wealth and status and denigrated or considered less important those who were poor or statusless. Doesn't our society do that? Let's be honest. If they were, if they were to use this picture that Paul uses, they would say the weaker members exist to serve the higher status members. But what Paul does is effectively flip this on his head, doesn't he? In fact, he says those who quote-unquote are less presentable are due more honor. 
This means that no member is more or less important than any other member. Do you see that? Do you know that? In the body of Christ, all are equal. When you enter into those doors, you shed your status because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The millionaire businessman that everyone in the community knows is on the same level as the janitor struggling to make ends meet. Because your status and your stature out there is not where you ought to derive your identity. In here, you are a member of the body of Christ, and whether you are an arm or a foot comes from whether the Holy Spirit has made you thus, not from what you are in the world. And your role is therefore to function in an other-focused direction in unity to build up the body. This is where the Corinthians went wrong. Some thought they were more important in the church because they were well-to-do or had status in culture. That they, they were treated better than the poor. And this is a grievous thing to Paul. In a church where the common denominator, you just want to think about how bonkers this is? In a church where the common denominator is worship of a Christ who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave and being obedient unto a shameful death on the cross, how on earth can one come and boast or be given first place for their worldly accomplishments and acclaim? It doesn't make any sense. Further, unless all members are treated equally and see themselves as part of the whole, you know this, that no unity can be maintained. Do you know that? Unless everybody sees themselves as equal, no unity can be maintained in the church. We have to see this, and we have to learn this, and we have to let it sing into our hearts and minds, because churches are prone to giving first place to those who the world would esteem. And those who have status are more prone to try to leverage that status to their own ends, and tragically, too many times, churches acquiesce. You know that's true, don't you? Russell Moore said this, why is the church so constantly drawn to economic and political power? This is not only the case for the highest levels of church, whether medieval popes or contemporary culture warriors, but also shows up in local assemblies. We're drawn to the conversion testimonies of celebrity athletes or beauty contestants or reality television stars because they bring a sense of weight and influence on their own terms. A weight and influence they are, in our view, lending to the gospel. In how many congregations are decisions made on the basis of spoken or unspoken decisions about who gives the most money and who might, if he or she were rankled, withhold that money? In such situations, we could see where our true religion is, and it's summed up in the dollar sign of mammon, not in the crossbeam of Jesus. Now, every member is important. Every member ought to be cherished. Every member is equal in the body of Christ because every member has been given a gift by the Spirit to be used not for their own good, but for the good of the whole. And the good of the whole is to be humble and to see oneself as a member on equal ground with other members working in concert for the mission of Christ, even if they're different. And you see, this, this diversity is good. Because it speaks profoundly to the world about what only Jesus can do. See, you'll agree with me on this. We're naturally drawn to people who look like us, right? Isn't that true? Are we naturally drawn to people just like us? Of course we are. People who look like us have similar life experiences, same interests, hobbies, life stages, ages. It's just what we naturally gravitate to. It's just what we do. And that's not inherently bad, okay? But it's also not unique to Christianity, is it? <laughs> In other words, the type of community we often gravitate to are things we can have even if Jesus were never crucified and raised. I mean, don't unbelievers hang out with people who are just like them? Don't they? Don't they commune with people their own age and with their own hobbies and who share their own opinions? What's unique about that? You don't need Jesus to be united with people who are just like you. Do you? Just look at politics, and you'll see how true this is on both sides of the aisle. Alternatively, consider how a diverse band of people joined together under the united banner of Christ, even while they have very little else in common, will look like to the world. 
What would that say? D.A. Carson, great quote, says, ideally, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says. And he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. You see? I think of a story that uh, the authors tell in uh, the book Compelling Community. They say uh, they had a friend, his name was Bill Anderson, and he first started visiting their church in the 60s. And he wasn't a Christian, okay, unbeliever, visiting their church. And at the time, he taught at Harvard. And uh, he actually studied communities. That, that was his area of, of study. But they say a career studying crowds did not prepare him for the local church. It says the diversity of the congregation impressed him. Beyond that, the genuineness of that diverse fellowship impressed him. In his words, it was striking from the first moment I came through the door. It was clear that something special was going on. The relationship seemed not so much unnatural as highly uncommon. So I was introduced to the idea of a healthy church, a concept that had before eluded me. They say, the power of this corporate witness provoked him. It undermined his conceptions of Christianity, and it began the process that would eventually lead to new life in Christ for him. A church full of people who are at different stages of life, different socioeconomic statuses, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different walks of life, from different neighborhoods, all united because of Jesus. That speaks profoundly to a world divided. It says that only something as powerful as the blood of Christ could bring us together. And even if we have nothing else in common, we have Jesus and the common goal of his glory, and that's enough. Blomberg, quoting him again, he says, Diversity within unity seriously challenges the prevailing models of church growth that stress homogenous grouping principles. Perhaps at a certain foundational level, outreach and fellowship occurs best among those most like ourselves. But the most dynamic evangelistic power of the gospel comes when the world is forced to sit up and take notice that people are loving each other in ways it cannot account for with humanistic presuppositions. Unity in diversity in the body tells the world that this is something only the blood of Christ can do. A church divided tells the world that it isn't much different than them after all. And that the blood of Christ isn't enough to be a common factor for them. And a church indistinguishable from the world is a church that's forsaken its call from Christ. And it can't rightly call itself the body of Christ because as Paul asked in chapter 1, is Christ divided? And what's the answer? No. So what will this unity bring? Besides speaking profoundly to a divided world, it will, last point, point three, cause mutual concern which leads to growth. Okay? Mutual concern which leads to growth. So membership, as we've seen, means physical attachment. It means the use of spiritual gifts for the common good, worked in selflessness with unity and diversity, and that kind of attachment, that kind of other-focusedness breeds mutual concern and care to the point that what one member feels, the others feel with them. Okay? So Paul envisions members seeing themselves as equal to others and using their gifts to benefit the whole body, not themselves. He sees such a oneness that each member's primary concern is the well-being of their fellow members. Look at verses 24 through 26. God has composed the body giving more abundant honor to the member which lacked, so that there may be what? No division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Then what does verse 26 say? If one member suffers, all the members suffer. If one member is honored, all members rejoice. 
So a whole host of things can come from this, right? Like, we can spend a whole sermon on just that, but let me just list a couple things that flow from this, okay? For one, it means when we don't use our spiritual gifts, or we forsake physical attachment and presence to and with the church body, we're causing harm to the whole. I just, okay, just think, think about if you woke up one morning and your, right, your left leg just refused to work, Okay? Your left leg called in sick for the day. No matter what your brain tried to tell it, it wouldn't listen, all right? What would that do for the rest of your body? Like, how would the rest of your day look? All the other members of your body would have to overcompensate, right? For your left leg. Like, your right leg would have to bear more weight. As would your back. Your arms would have to pull more weight for you as you get up and down. And by the time you went to bed for night, you would be sore all over. All because one member didn't want to show up. So it is with the body of the church. A refusal to use our gifts for the benefit of the church or an abandoning of the gatherings of the church causes the rest of the members to have to compensate for our absence. But second, it also speaks again to equality in the church because this kind of unity and interconnectedness means you need everyone else. That you are not a lone ranger who doesn't need anyone. You're admitting to not being self-sufficient, and that's hard for us. If someone thinks they get along without other Christians that they are united to and covenanted with, that they come and gather with as life priority, I got news, okay? Even if they think they're self-sufficient, they are not. They are self-deceived and lack gospel humility. Why? Because God has created us for community. And the body of Christ is designed to be literally dependent on one another. So united that they aren't trying to get first place, but falling over one another trying to be last. Ben Witherington said, Some Corinthians no doubt saw themselves in a very individualistic light as sufficient to themselves, especially in spiritual matters. Paul is disputing such notions. God has deliberately made the members of Christ's body interdependent so that all would have concern for others. This also has uniting effects because you aren't trying to be the most esteemed or honored, but one of many members who need each other. You see how Paul says, isn't this interesting? Paul says that they ought to have mutual care for one another and suffer together and rejoice together. This means that jealousy ought to have no place in the body of Christ, right? But isn't it interesting that he combines unity with emotions of the church rising and falling together? Did you notice that? Unity and the church emotions rise and fall together. He does that because oftentimes divisions in the church find their roots in someone or a group of someone's wanting to have first place. Jealous of others. They don't see themselves as a member of the whole. They see themselves as more important than others, and thus they should get their way. And their way never has to do with the bettering or growth of the body. (laughs) But what can benefit them and those who are in their group, or what makes them most comfortable or fits their preferences? Do you guys remember, you've read the book of James, do you remember what James said? He asked, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Do you remember when he asked that? He's like, why are you guys fighting and divided? And he answers for them. It's not the source of your, ple- your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. You, don't, you ask and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. That kind of posture doesn't rejoice when someone that isn't them gets good. It instead wishes it was them and jealously plots. That kind of posture doesn't build up, it tear down. I mean, there's a reason why. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that divisions, divisions are a sign of spiritual immaturity. Do you know that he says that in 1 Corinthians 3? I just think about it, okay? Who gets mad when someone else has a toy that they want to play with? Who throws a tantrum when they can't get that toy away from that other kid? Who gets jealous when someone has a better toy than them? Who pouts when they don't get their way? Who pulls hair and calls name and tattletales and turns the kids against other kids? Are those not the tactics of children and toddlers? 
Well, those, who are, those are the attributes of the spiritually immature too. They look at others and say, you're an eye, I have no need of you. You're a foot, you're not as important as me and thus should not get what you want, but I should get what I want. And let me ask you, when your child or grandchild or niece or nephew throws a tantrum, how do you respond? Do you ask, what will it take for you to stop? I'll do whatever you want. (laughs) Just stop. You want this toy from this other kid? Here. I'll take it from them and I'll give it to you. You want ice cream for every meal? Done. Is that what you do? I bet you don't. (laughs) You know what you do do? You get down and you say, how you're acting is wrong and here's why. Right? You say, this is the wrong way. Here's the, let me show you a better way. That's what the body does. It's full of a bunch of different people, a bunch of ragamuffins from different walks of life and at different places in their walk with Jesus, and they're walking at different paces, but they do it together. And they rebuke and they edify and they exhort and they serve. And they hurt together, and they laugh together, and they rejoice together, and they focus only on one another. No thought of self ever pops up because there isn't enough time. (laughs) Because they're so utterly focused on others. I'm reminded of a story Mark Dever tells of a friend he he had who worked for a campus ministry, and they attended the same church. And Dever was a member, but this guy wasn't, okay? So this fellow would slip in after the songs, and he'd sit for the sermon, and then he'd leave. So Dever asked him, why, why, you don't, why don't you come for the whole service? And the fellow said, well, I don't get anything out of the rest of it. And Dever asked him, have you ever thought about joining the church? And the fellow thought that was an absurd comment. <laughs> and he said, why would I join the church? If I joined them, I think they would just slow me down spiritually. And Dever asked, have you ever considered that maybe God wants you to link arms with those other people, and that perhaps, even though they might slow you down a little, you might speed them up, and that that's part of God's plan for how we're supposed to live as Christians together? And then he adds, God is not only concerned about the length and regularity of your quiet time each morning, he's also concerned about how you treat others, and that includes how you treat others with whom you have nothing in common except for Jesus Christ. That's why you need to invest your life in others and allow others to invest their lives in you. Being a member of a church should inculcate in you a committed concern for others. Growing as a Christian is not merely an individual matter. Rather, it's a matter for the whole church. Do you guys see? The body of Christ is interconnected and interdependent and ordered in such a way by the Spirit of God that all members are placed together in order to mutually care for one another and grow into the likeness of Christ. And from whence do they derive their source and power and strength? Where does the body receive its instructions on how to live and move and order itself? From the head who is Christ. Now, you know, you know that these chapters... Look, look again one more time, just down at your text, Okay. Just look down at your Bible, and you see these chapter and verse divisions? (laughs) You know those were just added by some guy, right? Those aren't inspired by the Holy Spirit. Just some fella was like, this is hard to flip to. It'd be easier for people to know verses and things like this and locate things if I added these chapters and divisions, okay? So that you look down at your text. What's the next chapter? It's this famous love passage, right? Do you see that if you take that division out, (laughs) this flows right into it. Do you guys see that? Now, we read this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, at weddings. We have it on our walls, at our houses. We talk about it like in a romantic way as it's primarily about how you relate to your spouse, right? Uh, Of course, you should, okay, don't hear me saying, you, you should love your spouse like this, okay? But it's not the immediate context. The context in which it originally appears in refers to the church. Do you see that? So what does it look like to live out 1 Corinthians 12? It looks like a love that reflects the love of Christ. It looks like using your gifts with a sacrificial covenant love for your brothers and sisters in the church. It looks like knowing that all your talents and gifting without covenant love is useless. It looks like being patient and kind, and not jealous, or arrogant, or braggadocious. 
It looks like not doing anything that would harm the body and its unity. It looks like not doing anything for oneself, only for others. It looks like not holding grudges, but freely forgiving. It looks like not keeping a mental list of how others have let you down. It looks like not ignoring sin in one another, but helping one another kill sin before it kills us. It looks like giving the benefit of the doubt and enduring and staying, especially when we don't get our way. Because guess what? This kind of love lasts eternally and can overcome anything because the love you show your brothers and sisters in the church will echo throughout eternity because God will, 1 Corinthians 3, judge you, did you know this, partly on how you treated Christ's body and bride. And these are the people who you'll spend eternity with. (laughs) What is a church member? It's someone who confesses that Christ is Lord and means it and thus has the indwelling spirit, and thus has a spiritual gift necessary for the growth of others. A church member is someone who commits and covenants with a local body and attaches itself to it for life. A church member physically gathers at every conceivable opportunity with the body they have covenanted with. A church member thinks of others first and foremost and uses the gift the spirit has given them to serve the mission of Christ. A church member endures and stays and loves and gives of themselves and hurts with the hurting and rejoices with the rejoicing. A church member fights for unity, despises disunity, and dies to self in order to maintain the unity of Christ. A church member is intentional about getting around people that don't look like them and rejoices in unity and diversity. A church member loves Jesus, adores their fellow members, and would do anything for their good. So when you hear me talk about biblical church membership and health, that's what I'm talking about. That's what we're trying to point you to. And you tell me, Is that not infinitely better than a country club or civic club or anything else we've ever experienced? Isn't that better? This is what we should strive to in light of the gospel, in light of Jesus moving heaven and earth to redeem us and places us in a family of the redeemed that we care deeply for. We have to pursue this. Will we do it perfectly? No. But we have to pursue it constantly and never let up. And we can do that by the power of the Spirit, for the glory of God, because of the uniting power of Christ. And even though it will still be teeming with faults, it will still be the dearest place on earth to us.